Now, as we come to the scripture, let me ask you, please, uh, to pray uh, with me. Father in heaven, we come to your word, and I pray that you would open our minds, hearts, um, enabling us to not only understand, but most especially to believe. And so, Father, in this understanding, we pray you would bring faith, that we may trust you, uh, and that as we trust you, uh, that, God, we will find that the very aim of the gospel is being fulfilled in us. Uh, that is, love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to First Timothy in chapter 1. First Timothy in chapter 1, please. I want to read the first 17 verses. We've read uh, these before, but uh, this week uh, I want to finish this off. So I want us to see all of the context here. 1 Timothy in chapter 1, please, verse 1. Hear the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the holy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted." I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I want to take up just this last verse of all of that, if God will help me. To the King of ages, or King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I read all of this, though, because to understand this particular sentence, it's necessary to understand why it's here. That is, why Paul puts it. Here, it's a, it's a doxology. A doxology is a word of praise. Doxa uh, means praise. Uh, um, logia means to say or to speak or a saying of some kind. So a doxology is a saying of praise. We, we have one at the end of our service today. It's a common one. Um, praise God from whom all blessings flow. There are others. Uh, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost. Uh, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be world without end. Amen. You know, you go through the history of the church and you find these doxologies, these words of praise, these moments when church will break out into an expression of praise. It's, it's, it's possible that this expression that Paul uses here under the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It could be that that was a common doxology in the early church. 
that when Paul was writing that, certainly he was inspired, he was breathing it out from God. It's not only true, but it may have been something that was used in, in, in gatherings of Christians before. And as he wrote it, others would, would just simply, oh, yes, we know that. We know that particular doxology. It could be that he was just laying it out as a, as a doxology for them to learn and to use as well. Whatever, it, it is that. It's a word of praise. And so the question is, why does Paul, in the middle of this letter, sort of erupt in this word here? Well, it's because he's been reflecting. If you were following as I was reading, if you've been here for the last few weeks, he was reflecting in his own, upon his own life and how God had worked in his own life. And thus that led to this word of praise concerning God and who God is And he was reflecting upon his own life and what God had done in his life because he was telling Timothy that he needed, Timothy needed to silence, if you will, those who were teaching that which was not true. Because if you followed that which wasn't true, then you would miss the aim of the gospel. It was only by teaching, preaching that which is true, proclaiming the true gospel in the church, that its aim would be fulfilled, which was love. That God would transform people to cause them to, to change from being unloving to love. And, and, and that only happens through faith. That is when one is reconciled to God by way of faith, not by way of anything we do, but by way of faith. And that brings then a good conscience, which enables us to approve that which is good, and a pure heart that enables us to, as our hearts are purified, to think less of ourselves and more of others, thus to really, to really love, thus enabling us to fulfill what God has called his people to do, which is to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. In fact, it was Jesus that said that uh, people should be able to discern in us him, and the way that we, they discern in us Jesus, they see us loving one another as he's loved us. And all of that, you see, comes by way of this reconciliation with God, this work of God's Spirit to join us with Him. Uh, and it comes by way of faith, not because of anything that is in us or because of us or anything that we are able to do, if you will. So Paul knows all of that. And it's important for Timothy to know all of that as well because Timothy is the pastor of the church and, and Paul has written to Timothy to say that the church is the pillar of the truth. That is that it's this truth, this gospel that we must, as the church, preserve, that is, keep pure, and also proclaim. And so it's important for Timothy to know all of that. So, so Paul's been laying that out, and, and at the end of laying all that out is when this doxology comes. And it comes because as Paul looks at his own life, he realizes that he is who he is, that is, a person who is a lover of God and a lover of God's people. He's who he is because of what God has done. Uh, he admits the fact that he was a blasphemer, that is one who spoke against God, one who spoke against Christ. To speak against Christ is to speak against God. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so if one speaks against the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit, one is speaking against God. One is a blasphemer. And that's who Paul was. He wasn't a lover of God at all. Um, he said he was a persecutor of the church, which means he was not a lover of God's people either. He was a, an insolent opponent. He was filled with rage and anger against the church, you see. And so that was Paul. He says, now look at me. I've gone from this one who was known as Saul of Tarsus, who was a blasphemer, a persecutor of the church, and an opponent of the church, and so forth. I've gone from that to being Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. How did that happen? Right? And he says, well, that happened only because I received the mercy of God. It was from God's mercy to me. He said, I received this mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now, remember, that doesn't mean that he was excused because of something he didn't know. He knew the gospel. He just simply didn't, and as he would put it, was unwilling to because he couldn't believe it because of his sin. He, he, was, he, was, he was, as he would say, hostile in mind towards God. He was dead in his trespasses and sins. The evil one, as he put it in Second Corinthians chapter 4, had blinded his eyes so that he could not see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And so he couldn't believe. And there he was. 
and, and though he was completely hopeless, had no hope, and helpless. And he said, God saw me in my miserable condition. And that miserable condition was playing itself out in the worst of all possible ways. And so God saw him in his hopelessness and his helplessness and looked upon him as Jesus looked upon the crowds one day when he saw the, the mass of people and he said, there they are helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. And so Paul was seen by God in that light and was given therefore mercy. And Paul knew that it was mercy. It was God's kindness to him when he was hopeless and helpless. And that mercy came to him, he said, in the form of grace. Grace to one who was unworthy of it, but yet grace that enabled him. Grace that brought with it faith, which he needed. He had no faith in Jesus, thus he was estranged from God. It was faith that was brought to him, given to him by this grace that enabled him to believe. And upon being believing was reconciled to God, joined together with him. And thus, then, the love that comes in Jesus came as well. And Paul said that my very life was transformed. Again, as he put it to the church in Ephesus. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ Jesus. By grace, we have been saved through faith. And this, not of our own doing, it's a gift. The gift of God, so that no one would boast. Paul knew all of that about himself. And so he looked at who he was as Paul, the apostle of Jesus. And I think there must have been days when he woke up and scratched his head and just marveled at that. And when he did, he would say, To the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever. He couldn't say, well, to Paul be honor and glory. He knew himself, you see. He knew himself. Uh, that hymn, beneath the cross of Jesus, has an expression in it. It says, two wonders I confess. And it's a, in a verse of that hymn where the hymn writer is speaking of the very dying Jesus. And, and he says, my heart is stricken with these two wonders. The wonders of his redeeming love and my unworthiness. And you get a sense, you see, at that moment in time, after Paul had rehearsed all of this about his own life, after he had thought it through, and he realized that, yes, there are two wonders. The, the, the redeeming love of God and my utter unworthiness. And that's what then broke forth into this great... Um, Doxology, if you will. And Paul knew too that as he wrote this to Timothy, that he was writing to a whole group of people who lived in the shadow of this great temple. There was this great temple, as you know, as we've talked about before. It was a temple to the, to the goddess Diana, which was her Latin, or Artemis, which was the Greek name for her. And it was huge. It was known in the ancient world as one of the seven wonders of the world. And there it was huge in Ephesus. When you came to Ephesus, that's what you looked for. That's what you would see. It would be a sense that you, you couldn't even not see it, even if you didn't want to. It was so big, massive, and, and everybody was talking about it. And you remember, we've talked about this before as well, you remember when, when Paul came into uh, Ephesus uh, during his second missionary journey, comes into Ephesus, and he stays a couple of years, which is a long time for Paul to stay anywhere. So he stays a couple of years, and he teaches in their public places. Uh, and as he does, uh, a riot breaks out because there's this silversmith named Demetrius. And the silversmith made, named Demetrius made a great deal of money selling silver statues of the goddess Diana. And, and what he said about Paul to the people, he said, listen, Paul's been going everywhere and saying that gods made with human hands aren't really gods at all. The implication being, do you realize what will happen if everybody in Ephesus believes that? We're going to lose our two big sources of income. One big source of income is making these silver statutes and selling them. The other is our tourism, people coming to Ephesus to go to the temple. And if we lose that, we lose everything here. That's, that's our source of, 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 of provision. And, and, and so, so, so we 
We can't let that happen. And at the end of his speech, all the people there in this riot situation, whether to take Paul and his people, um, uh, says, they, they see this great is the goddess Artemis. And they shout that, great, great is she. And Paul, at this point, in the midst of that group, of that type of person, that person that grew up in that culture, in that environment, says, no, 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 no. She's not great. God is great. There's a sense in which he says, has she ever taken anybody like me and caused that person to love? Has that God ever done that? Look at who I am. Look at who I was. Has that ever happened? He says, he says that, you see, is, 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 is the result of the right truth. You see, theology should always lead to doxology. Right? Theology should always lead to doxology. It isn't just about knowledge. It isn't just about being smarter than everybody else when we talk about things of God. That isn't it. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 says, that kind of knowledge simply puffs up. See, see that kind of knowledge, when you're just gaining it just to be smarter than everybody else and say, we know more about this than you do, uh, uh, that simply puffs, that leads to pride. But you see, real theology, the real knowledge about God, leads to faith and love. See, the end result of being a good theologian is that you're a loving person. Loving because you've been completely changed by that which is true and that which is true about God. Theology always leads to praise. Why? But because... If we're careful about this theology, that is, if we really do understand it, what we're speaking about always is God's holiness and God's love and our unholiness and our need for His grace. That is, His love expressed to those who are unworthy of it. As if we're really careful with our theology, that's where it all shakes out. That's where it all comes to for us. That's the, that's the guts of the gospel. And, and, and so you see, the more we dig into the scriptures, the more we dig into what is true, what is real theology, the more that comes to us. We realize the greatness of God and we realize our own sin. We realize the love of God and we realize our own need for it. And so you see, those are the two wonders that we confess is great redeeming love and our unworthiness. And so the more of that we see, you see, the result of that is doxology. The result of that is praise. The, the, the result of that is we can't sort of hold it in because we really see it. And so, as Paul's working his way in this letter, you get a sense that while he may not think these thoughts every moment of every day, right now he is, and he's walking through saying, Timothy, you're the church, the pillar of truth. Here's the truth. The aim of this truth is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And and the only way that comes about is by the very mercy of God, which is poured out in his grace. He sees us in our hopeless and helpless condition, and he pours his grace out to us because we're unworthy as even as we're unworthy of it and it transforms our life and this is what we become those who trust in him therefore reconciled to him those who have a sincere faith approve that which is right and his hearts are being purified that we may love and he says wow that's amazing therefore to the king eternal immortal Invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Don't pat me on the back. Don't say, way to go, Paul. It was great. We knew you before. We know you now. We like you better now. That's not the point. He says, see me and say, God is great. See me and say, there isn't any, any other God in all of the world. And when I say that, I don't mean there are other gods. I mean, you know what I mean. There aren't, there's no one else other than God who really is God. 
because he's the only one who can do that. He says he's the king eternal. As he, as he thinks about this, he says, you know, this God, he is the very one who is king. And he's, he's king for, for all time as, uh, after God led the Israelites out of Egypt and through the Red Sea in that, that great time. The Israelites began to sing, led by Miriam, as you might remember, Moses' Moses' sister. And as they, as she as she sang, the, the the last line of her song is this: "The Lord will reign forever and ever." Again, another moment in time. We don't necessarily always think those thoughts. You know, you're driving down the street. You may not have anything that sparks in you that the Lord is reigning forever and ever, right? But. They had a spark in that day and they saw it. The Red Sea had opened and, and they were delivered and, and, and God had protected them. And they realized, who can do that? Only one who is king of the universe, only one who is king over nature, only one who is king over kings. He's the only one who can do that. And, and they get this, this, this understanding, yes, he shall rule uh, forever and ever. It's, it echoes uh, throughout the psalm. The psalmist writes in Psalm 145 and verse Verse 1, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. He says, you are the King, and I will continue to bless your name uh, for all time, forever uh, and, and forever. And the psalmist writes in Psalm 10, verse 16, the King, the Lord is King forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. He's the king forever and ever. He's the king eternal. He's the king of ages. Uh, that's who he is. He's the king. He is, in fact, the sovereign one. He's the creator of all that is. As the creator, it means he's the author of it. As the author, it means he has authority over it. That's who God is. Nothing can take place because God is king without him ordaining it saying, yes, that can happen because he's the king over everything. Now here, the apostle is speaking of God the Father is the one who is, who is king, who is the Lord over everything. We know that our Lord Jesus is king as well. Uh, the, the revelation speaks of him as king of kings and lord of lords. You might remember as he was entering into, into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, they, they hailed him as king after his resurrection. And when he was ascended, we read of the fact that he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, right hand, position of authority, position of rule and reigning. And there he is, this very one who does, in fact, rule and reign over, over all that is. And so, even now, the Lord Jesus, with the Father and the Spirit, God, is ruling and reigning over everything. He is, in fact, uh, the, the King. And thus, Paul recognizes that to the King of, to the king of Ages. And it's of ages, that is, he's the king eternal. We, we know that, that God, in some sense, is beyond time. He's eternal. He existed before time began, as we know it. He's the eternal one. Uh, and yet, he is the king in the midst of time as well, that God sees past, present, and future. And all that he does in his ruling, causes past, as we know it, to fit with present, as we experience, to fit with future, as God has ordained it and planned it to be, so that it will fulfill all of his purposes. So God was king ruling in the Garden of Eden. He was king of creation. He was ruling and reigning even when Adam sinned against him. So that Adam's sin against him, in fact, didn't thwart the rule, the reign of God, but would lead to the fulfillment of that which God had planned and planned to bring about. At the flood, God was ruling and reigning. And nothing that took place there would thwart God's rule and reign, in fact, everything that took place at that point in time was part of God's plan as he ruled and reigned over his creation. And even then, uh, 
that common grace, which God promised after the flood, would be used by God to bring about his plan. God was ruling and reigning in the life of Abraham as he came to Abraham and made promises to Abraham. And he said, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And we see in history God ruling and reigning over all things to bring that about. In the days of Moses, God was ruling and reigning and he brought them to Sinai because he had a purpose and he gave the law to them. And he ruled and reigned through ancient Israel and and all the events of history so that his plan would be fulfilled. And he was ruling and reigning in the life of King David as he came and made covenant with David. And he said, from your seed or out of your family will come one who will rule the earth. And he ruled and reigned over all of history that that would come about. And as Jesus comes on the scene, we realize it's, it's, it's because God is ruling and reigning over all things. And so this very one, God incarnate, comes, Christ with us, God with us. And he comes and he lives and he dies. And God is ruling and reigning in the life of Jesus. And he's ruling and reigning in the death of Jesus. And he's ruling and reigning and raising Jesus from the dead. And he ascends and rules and reigns, Christ does from on high. Everything being summed up, if you will, in Jesus. All of history because of the rule and the reign of God. And he'll do that forever. Nothing will ever thwart him. Nothing will ever beat him. Nothing will ever conquer him. He is king. And you see, Paul would know, that's precisely what I need. I need one to conquer for me. I need one who is king over everything so that he can conquer that which is the enemies of my own heart. You might remember last week I quoted uh, verse 3 from uh, John, uh, Charles Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be? It begins that verse by saying, Long my imprisoned spirit lay. See, that's our problem. We're imprisoned. And so Jesus is this very one who will come and ransom, set free. He's the one, of prophet Isaiah spoke of it. Jesus himself would own these words as the ones who would set the captives free. Who are those imprisoned ones? Who are those captives? All of us who are in sin. That's all of us. Right? As everyone. And, and so Paul knew, how can we break free from that? It is impossible for me to break free. He was thinking of his own life and he said, he said, I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Here I was as an unbeliever, not knowing what I really should approve and count as good. I needed someone to come and do something in me, for me, because I couldn't do it myself. That's the issue. And so there has to be one who's king. There has to be one who has authority over everything that has us imprisoned. And so he, Paul would say, he's the king. And he's the king eternal, meaning he'll always rule and reign over these things. So these things can never come back once he's broken them. They can never come back because he's always ruling and reigning and will always rule and reign. Therefore, he can promise me eternal life. He can promise me life with him. He can promise me life as one who belongs to him. Life as one whose law is written on my mind and heart. One who who, who knows him. One whose sins are forgiven. He can promise me that for all of eternity. Because he's not just the king for the day. He's not just the king for the decade. He's not just the king for the generation. But he's king for all of eternity. Therefore, I needn't worry. He can break my bonds and he can set me free and he can rule in such a way where I'll never be in bondage again. He's the king eternal. And that's why he was worshipping. And you see, because he's the king eternal, then, then the great promises that we have through scripture are really true. They're not just simply empty promises, but they're promises made by the one who's the king eternal, the one who has authority over everything. Therefore, when he makes a promise, nothing can thwart that promise. We live on this promise in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And you see, what makes that promise 
able to be fulfilled is when there is one who's made the promise, who has authority over all things, who's the king, and who has authority over all things forever. See, when he makes that promise, it isn't just like you and me saying, well, I'll love you forever or whatever, you know, we do those kinds of things. But, 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 but God makes this promise as the one who has authority over all things. And so he says, trust me. I'm the king over all things. Therefore, I can, and because I love you, I will make all things work together for good. And this isn't just one of those sayings we use to cope with life. There's all kinds of sayings that, that we kind of grow up with that we, we just sort of use. They're, they're nice little sayings, and people pat each other on the head with them all the time. and say, don't worry, this will work out for good, and so forth. And no, no, no. This is God who's saying this. And, and it's important for us to get that it's God who is the King Eternal who's saying this. Because there are many moments in life, perhaps... Most moments in life that it doesn't seem like this is true. Where it seems like things are working in such a way as to make my life relatively miserable. Right? Difficult. And I wonder how anything at the end of the day or the end of the decade or the end of my life could ever be counted good. And God says... I'm the king of ages. I never stop being king. I'm ruling and reigning. Trust me, this is true. Because I have authority over all things. Give me some time. Walk through this with me. Trust me, I'm the king of ages. And if you know him to be, as Paul did, the king who can break bonds... The king who has authority even over that which is binding my very soul. He's saying, if you know me to be that one who has that kind of authority, trust me, I'm working all things because I obviously have authority over all things. I'm the king eternal. And then he says, trust me with this, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will we not also uh, uh, with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who's raised and is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? And he says, trust me, I'm the king eternal. I'm ruling over everything. Nothing will separate you from the love that I have for you. Now again, that's important for us to take as a statement of the king eternal. The one who has authority over all things. The one who is king over all things. Because there are many times in life that it looks like there are things coming against us which say that God no longer loves you. And God says, no, 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 trust me. Remember, I'm the one who broke the bonds. I'm the one who sent Jesus. That's the, the, the expression of my love. Now hold on to that. Trust me. Nothing. I have authority over all things. Nothing can separate you from my love. I'm the King Eternal. That's why we can trust, for instance, the promise in 1 Corinthians and uh, chapter 10 and verse 13, which says, No temptation, or you could translate that also as, No trial has overtaken you, that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you to be tempted or tried beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you might be able to endure it. Now, again, on many days, it seems like we're under a situation, a trial, a test, a difficult situation, we're under that, or a temptation that's coming to us, and it appears as if it's eating our lunch. And it's going to destroy us. And God, who is the king over that circumstance, in every circumstance, he rules over every circumstance. No, 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 trust me. 
I will not allow a circumstance or a situation or a temptation to come to you that will overtake you. I'm more powerful than every situation and every circumstance. I rule over it. So if it comes to you, understand it isn't because I'm going, whoops, or coming or because I'm going, wow, that's a really strong one. No, it's because I love you. And this will work for you good. It's one of the all things. This trial, this difficulty is one that I will enable you, I will enable you to withstand. And I call that a way of escape. I call that a way that you're going to be able, I'll provide for you by way of word, by way of encouragement, by way of spiritual strength. I'll provide for you that which you need. Trust me. The only thing that makes that promise worth believing is that the one who made it is the king for all time. Because if he's only the king for today, that won't help tomorrow. And if he's only the king at my death, that, that, that won't help me through eternity. But he's the king eternal, you see. And so he always rules over everything. And so that's true. Every promise of God, you see, requires, if that promise is going to be helpful to us, <laughs> that he's the king all the time, over everything. The king eternal. He says, I'm the king eternal, I'm the king immortal. Now, this particular word for immortal that the apostle uses means incorruptible. That is, cannot decay, will not decline. That is to say, there's no change in the very essence of who God is, so that we don't have to worry that over time he's going to get more wise. Right? (laughs) Or he's going to become less Wise. No, he's wise. He has all wisdom all the time. Uh, That makes God different than everything else we know. Everything else we know declines, right? One of the big fears, even about our own society, is that we may be declining, right? That's the fear. We may be declining. Other nations may, may be gaining on us and depressing us. We may be declining. Societies decline. That's just, that's just true. Everything declines physically, materially. Everything declines. But God doesn't decline at all. So we haven't worry about him being less wise today. Oh my goodness. God, you don't get now. I mean, maybe a hundred years ago you were able to cope with people and help your people, but, but you don't know the situation we're in now. How, how, no, no, no. He's, and, he, and he's no less powerful, no less loving, so that when we come to him, regardless of the sin with which we come to confess, still the blood of Christ is no less sufficient than it ever was to cover. In fact, that's Paul's testimony. He said, listen, the blood of Christ covered for me. It'll cover for any believer. Really, look at who I was. You can't be worse than that. And so it's the blood of Christ is as powerful as always. Um, A.W. Tozer wrote this about God and his being unchangeable. He said, In this world where men forget us, change their attitude toward us as their private interests dictate, and revise their opinion of, of us for the slightest cause, it is, is it not a source of wondrous strength to know that the God with whom we have to do changes not, that his attitude toward us is the same as it was in eternity past and will be in eternity to come? What peace it brings to the Christian's heart to realize that our Heavenly Father never differs from Himself. I love that expression. He never differs from Himself. There was a movie my kids used to like to watch, especially my littlest one, called Newsies. I don't know if you ever saw the movie. Anyway, there's a, there's a scene where one of these little boys, young man, gets arrested. And his picture's in the paper. And another little kid says, he looks just like himself, right? And God always just looks like himself. He, he never changes, you see. And that's good to us. He always looks like Jesus. 
He always looks like the Redeemer. He always looks like the one who died for us. He always looks like the one who lives for us. He always looks like the one who took our sins. He always looks like that, you see. He he always looks like himself. He never differs from himself. In coming to him at any time, we need not wonder whether we shall find him in a receptive mood. I always worry about my children. I think about my way. Probably ruined their lives growing up. And I think, you know, sometimes they came to me and I was probably really happy. And other times they came to me and I was really sad. I wonder if they they could predict me, you know. I'm sure they could, but I wonder. But God never changes, you see. He's always receptive to misery and need, as well as to love and faith. He does not keep office hours nor set aside periods when he will see no one. Neither does he change his mind about anything. Today, this moment, he feels toward his creatures, toward babies, towards the sick, the fallen, the sin, the sinful, exactly as he did when he sent his only begotten son into the world to die. He never, God never changes moods or cools off in his affections or loses enthusiasm. His attitude towards sin is now the same as it was when he drove out the sinful man from the eastward garden. And his attitude toward the sinner is the same as when he stretched forth his hands and cried, Come to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's always like that. Always know we can come to him in Jesus' name. He's incorruptible. He's immortal. He's invisible. We can't see him. Now, sometimes we see that to be a disadvantage. We can't see him. We wished we could. Uh, And and there are times when throughout history, for instance, even the Old Covenant, they were able to see Theophany, see God, you see. And we know that he, he reveals himself perfectly in our Lord Jesus Christ. But when Paul speaks of this one who is invisible, what he's trying to get at is he's beyond our comprehension. He's beyond what we can put our arms around. He's beyond what we can see. We could never, even if we could look at him and gaze upon him, we'd never see the whole of him in the sense that he's bigger than we could really, really ever see, really, really ever, ever get. One author put it like this. He writes... And when I say that, this particular author is still alive, so I don't want to give his name, lest he really messes up, but he really said something really good right here. I don't think he's going to mess up particularly, but, but he writes this. He says, for some, the invisibility of God may come as something of a disappointment. Human beings have a natural curiosity. We want to uncover what is hidden and gaze upon what is seen, but we cannot lift the curtain on God. Invisibility is of the essence of his deity. Therefore, God is to be praised for his invisibility. We're not to complain about, oh, I can't see him. He's to be praised for that. This may be one of God's most underrated attributes. Which is more worthy of worship, a visible God or an invisible God? The fact that God cannot be seen shows that there are aspects of his divine being which are not subject to our scrutiny. God is without limits and without boundaries. He cannot be probed and dissected. We must accept that there are some divine mysteries which the human mind cannot penetrate. There are some things about God, like invisibility, which are so great and so beyond our comprehension that they are known only to God. Otherwise, God would not be God. So it isn't that he makes himself invisible so that he can be God and we can't. It's that he is, therefore he is. That's just who he is. He's beyond all of that. So, so, when, so when God gives this second commandment, make no graven images. Now, there's lots of things involved there, of course. We shouldn't make images that we worship in place of God. But he even says, of me, don't make any graven images. Why? Because you can't. Whatever it is that you may try to make, whether it's just in your mind or whether it's something physical, it will miss it. It'll simply be wrong. You can't get it all. So don't do that. It'll limit your worship of me. No images. I'm invisible in that sense. God has been gracious to make himself known to us that we can see his invisible attributes, Romans 1, tell us are, are, are made known to us in his creation. We see his wisdom and his power. Most specifically, we see him in Jesus. Scripture says that the evil one has blinded the eyes of unbelievers so that they cannot see the, the, uh, the glory of God that is in the face of Christ. But God sheds forth his light that we can see it. And so we see in Jesus 
God. God with us. We read from John chapter 1 this morning that the, the only God, the God who is at his side, has made him known, Jesus. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Paul writes in Colossians that, that Jesus is, the, is, is that which is seen uh, of the invisible God. He's, he's that which is visible of the invisible God. We can, we can see him. Thus, to know God, to really see him, one must know Christ. It's utterly impossible to know God without knowing Christ. In fact, even in the Old Covenant, God reveals himself to the people of Israel by revealing Christ, the Lamb, by revealing Christ, the sacrifice, by revealing Christ, the the priest, by revealing Christ, the king, by revealing Christ, the prophet. You see, in all of those in ancient Israel, what is God doing? He's showing them Jesus. Jesus comes and he personifies. He's, he's the very fulfillment of all of that. When they look at Jesus, you see, when you look at Jesus, you should immediately begin reading in Genesis and end at the end of the Old Covenant. Why? Because that's, that's him. All summarized there. So even in the Old Covenant, what they were getting to know was Jesus. They didn't see him yet, but they got... They, And then he comes and you say, yes, that's him, that's God. There he is. He's the king, eternal, immortal, invisible. He's the only God. There isn't another. And thus you see, it's to him that honor and glory forever and ever must must go. This Jesus is... The very one who makes known to us God who is invisible. We see him. And this God who is eternal is the one who before the foundations of the world laid out his plan. It's this God who is eternal. And Paul would come to know who would say it was before the foundations of the world that he chose me to be in Christ. You would know that it was even then when the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God comes and makes covenant. And the Father says, I will save my people from their sins. And the Son says, I will come and die for them. And the Spirit says, I will take that which you have planned and that which you have done, Father and Son, and I will make it real to them. I'll give them life that they may believe. And so Paul would know that he was saved by King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, the only God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we see that. We don't see the plan being made. We don't see the Holy Spirit applying it. We see that in Jesus on the night that he was betrayed. For it was then he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples, and he said, This, which you can feel and touch and smell and eat, this is my body, which is given for you. And the same way he took the cup... And after giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. This do in remembrance of me. As often as you eat of this bread, the apostle says, and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We make proclamation of that. We're fulfilling what Paul writes to Timothy about. We're preserving this truth and we're proclaiming it as well. And this is the truth of Christ. King eternal, immortal, makes the invisible visible, the only God. To him be honor and glory always. Let's pray. Father in heaven, here we are at your table doxologizing together. We see here uh, all that truth of you. In Jesus. And we give you thanks. We know who we are, were without Christ. We know who we are in Him. And we know that we could never have gotten from who we were before to who we are now. That is your work. And we give you thanks. 
And we trust that every promise you've made to us is true because you're ruling and reigning over every promise that you've made and you'll rule and reign over every promise that you've made forever and nothing will ever change in that. And you'll do that even though we may not be able to see how it is that you do that. And and we trust you. I pray that around this table today is great praise. So I pray that you'd Set apart this bread and this juice that we might know that our Lord Jesus is present with us. And that by being in his presence, that you will increase our faith, strengthen it. That we may live as you would have us live. As those with sincere faith, approving that which is good and hearts that are pure to love. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. He invites to all those who know the before and after, who understand themselves to be sinners in the sight of God without hope, except in his sovereign mercy, to receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the Savior of sinners. And you desire to live in such a way that will proclaim that, that will show that as one who becomes a follower of Christ. Uh, that's true for you. I invite you to come. These two sections down this aisle to my left. These two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. And know that your coming is unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. And your very coming is to his honor and his glory. Please come.